At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, Joe Neal, hosting this one for the first time. So I'm hoping that you, our listeners, won't be too disappointed to not have David Nutt here today. But luckily for me and for you listeners, I have a brilliant guest with me and we have much to discuss. So we'll be talking about psychedelic assisted therapy, psychiatry, what it's like to work in the NHS as a consultant psychiatrist, music and many related topics, I am sure. And that guest is Dr. Graham Campbell. And although we have worked together on an academic project, we've not actually met properly in person until today. So I am so excited to have Graham here today. You're in for a real treat, everybody. Graham is a psychiatrist and he has a special interest in psychoanalysis, which I guess is maybe not typical for a psychiatrist. I could be wrong. In consciousness and in music. And he makes his own music. So he worked in the NHS for a number of years, but then he jumped ship and he now works in psychedelic assisted therapy because that has not come into the NHS yet. And he is is now the director of clinical psychiatry at Small Pharma. Small Pharma is a pharmaceutical company developing a psychedelic DMT, dimethyltryptamine, for psychiatric disorders. So a very warm welcome to you, Graham. Thank you so much, Joe. It's so great to be invited to come on the podcast and talk. Lots to talk about. Lots to talk about. It's such a treat for the listeners to have you here. So I thought we'd start at kind of at the beginning of your career. So your early career, your decision to do medicine, to study medicine to start with, because that's so difficult, then to go into psychiatry, and then to work on psychedelic medicine. So how did you sort of come to where you are? That's a big question. It <laughs> it's a lot. Ah, yeah. So, I mean, I think I've I've just always been a really curious person. I was a really curious kid. I got really interested in science in middle school. So it would have been just before secondary school for most people. But yeah, really interested in science. I think I wanted to be a doctor when I, when I was 12, from the age of 12. And then I think when I was 14, I wanted to be a psychologist. I think I'd given up on the idea of becoming a doctor. And then I realized after a little bit of time, oh, there's a thing called a psychiatrist. By that time, I suppose I was always curious about my own mind, about dreams. Maybe from about the age of 12, I was kind of thinking about dreams and, you know, what they mean. You know, why do we dream? What is sleep? What's all this weird stuff that my mind does at nighttime? Oh, did you have very vivid dreams as a child? I remember wanting to eat lots of cheese to try and make my dreams more vivid. But yeah, I think I had lots of dreams and 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 there was a period of my teenage in my teenage years where I was kind of keeping record of my dreams and 
doing a, a dream diary and we did an exercise at school where we had to do diaries and mine was a dream diary and we put it to music and then made a recording and but I suppose yeah I've always had that that curiosity that interest in science that curiosity around around people and and probably my parents encouraged me a little bit I'd say fairly gently you know down that kind of path and I remember wanting to also do creative stuff as well I doing I wanted to do art in school and but I was sort of veered towards the the academic subjects and then yeah i had a i had a, a break after my a levels but i actually literally had a break i had a road accident and i had a, a, a serious leg injury oh yeah that sort of that was that was quite a big deal but it gave me it gave me a lot of experience of being a patient aha uh-huh, which most doctors don't have until later in life really I guess. I think that's. I think that's probably true. Yeah. I mean, I've obviously I've met a lot of people who've had similar kind of experiences of being on the receiving end, either through, you know, being a carer for family members or or having illnesses themselves. But yeah, I, th- I think it was a really powerful experience and and really showed me quite a lot about what good care meant. You know, it was a real difficult experience at the time, but you know, being on the receiving end, experiencing. The kind of real human side of of care, I think, was so valuable. So that I think that that informed it. Set me back a year. I had to reapply to university, but that certainly informed you know my practice and really encouraged me to to pursue it more. Yeah, and where did the psychoanalysis come from then? Yeah, that's a good question. I I remember trying to read Freud when I was about fourteen, fifteen, not understanding very much of it at all i just found it so dense and complicated and i i think i mean i think again it was you know this idea of the unconscious mind where some of these where ideas come from where dreams come from where this idea of the sort of symbolic i think through art as well i think that you know i was very interested in visual art and in my late teenage years you know following the turner prize and the work of salvador dali and rene magritte and the surrealist painters so that sort of infused into into that interest about the unconscious. So yeah, didn't understand it when I was in my teenage years at all, but started again, trying to read a bit more about it in my first year of medical school. And that was actually alongside reading about psychedelics as well. Ah, so early, early stage, you were interested in psychedelics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Some of that I think was from a in my year out when I was recovering from my, my road accident and my leg injury. I did a psychology A level, like an, an additional A level during that time to sort of keep me keep me occupied. And in that, you know, there was talk of psychedelics very briefly as a sort of model for psychosis that used in that in that sort of way to help people understand. And that was about as far as the conversation went in A level psychology. But then, you know, you'd see stuff on telly about the sixties and people having psychedelic experiences at music festivals and for me, I remember this curiosity of thinking, well, that doesn't really add up, you know, if people were, if it was just a model for psychosis, but people were using it and talking about it and, you know, it was influencing music and, you know, creativity and culture in, in these rich ways, then, then how does this, how do I make sense of this? And Graham, I remember you saying you wanted to be in the 60s. You know, you, you wished you'd been around in the 60s. Yeah, I do remember. I do remember. I must have been about seventeen, I think. And I do remember one particular. It was one particular day, and I think it was one particular TV program or something that that really triggered this kind of 
I don't know, sadness that, that I lived in the 90s and I was, you know, those were my, that was my formative decade. And what happened to the 60s and where was all, where did all that idealism go? And I remember t- I got, I got really sad about, about not living in the 60s. I think it was a fleeting thing. I don't still harbor that, that fantasy. I'm sure the 60s have been caricatured and, and hyped as well. It wasn't all, you know, hippies and, and love, but. But yeah, I remember having that sort of uh, curiosity about the 60s and the music from the 60s and, and yeah, that whole sort of scene. Yeah. So what was it like working in the NHS as a consultant in psychiatry? So you were working in an inpatient unit, I think? Yes. Yeah. From So I'd, I'd worked in an inpatient unit as a trainee, you know, throughout my training, having sort of having graduated. So I'd worked around Sussex mainly, actually. And so I've worked in various psychiatric hospitals at, in Sussex Partnership NHS Trust throughout Sussex. And then from 2011, that's when I started working at Millview Hospital in Brighton and Hove. And initially as a trainee and then as a locum psychiatrist at the end of my training. So I worked in the intensive care ward. I worked on the female adult general acute ward for about seven months as a locum consultant psychiatrist and then worked on the male ward for about eight years actually from from 2012 until 2020. I think our listeners would probably want to know a bit more about how it works in an inpatient unit. So these are people with acute mental illness. Yeah, so my responsibility was as the, the senior psychiatrist in the team looking after 20 men on an, in an inpatient ward, probably about two-thirds of the people that were in the hospital or on our ward were detained under the Mental Health Act. You know, it really fluctuated. You know, obviously, we we tried to make it as least restrictive as possible, and that's a big part of the Mental Health Act is the, you know, the effort to try and use less restriction and work with people in a more collaborative way. But due to the nature of the people who would be admitted to hospital and, and really that's usually you know a last resort and often for the mental health act you have to demonstrate that you've really tried to support somebody in the community you know in a, in a much less restricted way you know try and help people in their homes and outside of hospital but the people who you know are usually in you know quite a serious state of mental health crisis are the people who get admitted to hospital and come under our care and that's and that's also usually people who are, are really struggling with either looking after themselves because of their mental illness or you know who present a risk to themselves or other people and so yeah it's a sort of it's i wouldn't say it's a, a last resort but it's it's a it's a resource that is used at you know after lots of other things have failed and and our effort is to really try and help people's mental health stabilize to the extent that they can regain control regain that that autonomy to start to be well our aim is always to discharge people from hospital as safely as possible and help them be able to pick up you know their recovery with community support out of hospital so it's really it's usually quite sort of high intensity work really really close teamwork and you know i was fortunate enough to work with you know, such a great team on Regency Ward at Millview Hospital and, and the team at Millview Hospital and, you know, Brighton and Hove Acute Mental Health Services were were a great team to work with. And so, you know, it's, it wasn't always an enjoyable job, you know. It was no, a hard job, Graham. I would say. 
Yeah, very hard, very challenging work, a lot to think about, a lot to hold in the balance all the time. But, you know, so satisfying to to see people be able to regain that control and that sense of autonomy and, and that, that ownership and, you know, of their mental health recovery. So yeah. that was the the goal. So Graham, do you, are, with, are these the kind of people who would benefit, do you think, from psychedelic assisted therapy, the sort of severely depressed and maybe traumatized? Yeah. So I'd thought about this quite a lot because in the last couple of years, the last two or three years of that job, I'd already started working with Imperial College as ah. as much as I could, as much as my day job would allow you know, I was a sort of assistant psychedelic guide at Imperial, which we'll, we'll probably come on to talk about a little bit more. But, but du- during that time, you know, I was kind of in this mixed role of learning more about psychedelic therapy and learning more about therapy and the application of therapy, psychotherapy, whilst at the same time working in this acute setting where, you know, with the best will in the world, a lot of the intervention was medicine, was kind of, yeah, antipsychotic medicine, antidepressants. And so, yeah, I spent a good few years really thinking about this and trying to, you know, integrate, I would say, you know, these different approaches. And actually, what helped me really get into the psychedelic field was, I remember a patient I worked with who, it appeared initially like none of the standard treatments were really working. You know, the, the when he was admitted, he was profoundly depressed. There was a very high level of risk that, to himself from his depression, you know, his life was in danger really from it. And I was presented with a story that that no medicine was helping. And so that's what led me down the path of actually in the Maudsley treatment guidelines, look, looking at what additional treatments might be useful. And actually there was ketamine. But I think at that time, at that time it was before, you know, some of the Spravato trials and yeah. and the evidence was, you know, was was saying it looked really promising for ketamine, but essentially it said good luck trying to access that treatment yeah. for some yeah. and it was something i really explored and looked into and spoke to my our pharmacy departments and you know there were real logistical challenges about it and it was still very kind of off piste at the time and and off license i think at that time but that that really opened opened my eyes most of the people that i worked with in the hospital had psychotic illnesses like schizophrenia schizoaffective disorder or or bipolar affective disorder with psychosis. And and that was usually the reason why they were admitted, because there was that sort of difficulty with you know, reality often and, and a real loss of, like I mentioned, loss of control. And so the vast majority of people I worked with in the hospital, I was really clear that wouldn't likely benefit from psychedelic therapy and would be contraindicated in the trials as well. But there were people who, and every psychiatrist has had, I think, this experience of working with people who seem incredibly stuck, you know, through depression, through anxiety, and sometimes through, you know, experiences of trauma as well. But, you know, the depression left some people feeling incredibly stuck. And I remember occasionally thinking throughout my training, actually, you know, that if only there was some way to to really help people become really unstuck, to, to find a different approach, to to catalyze therapy in some way, you know, that, that that might really help some people, you know, in the right circumstance, with the right support, you know, the right approach. So, yeah, and thinking about that patient, 
was mentioning with the the potential ketamine therapy, I was thinking, you know, well, when most of our conventional treatments have failed, you know, maybe we need other options. Maybe we need to think differently. Maybe we need to find other other approaches. Do you know, did that person ever get ketamine when it became more available? So I don't know, actually. I mean, that's one of the downsides of working in a service that, that is quite divided between community and inpatient. You know, my, my work was dedicated for the inpatient work. So I sometimes got a sense of how people were doing in the community, but I wasn't able to really follow them very consistently. So I don't, I don't know. I mean, one thing I will say is that, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not somebody who's anti-psychiatry or anti-psychiatric treatments. I, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of nuanced discussion about the, the pros and cons and the benefits of, of psychiatry or, and potentially overreach and the harms, but medicines, I mean, we, we found a treatment plan that actually worked for him and the medicines do work in lots of, lots of cases too. So thankfully he was helped in without ketamine and without ah. you know, resorting to other treatments. So so a good, happy ending. So, Graham, then you start to work at Imperial. So you're you're also, you know, doing this alongside the psychiatry work. So that's a lot on top. And how how was that experience then working on the Silodep two trial? I think it was. Yeah, it seems like such a long time ago now. I have to say, it seems like. Uh, so essentially, I'd consider that to be an apprenticeship of sorts. I was an assistant guide. So I I was always there with one of the core team. So that's Rosalind Watts, Michelle Baker-Jones, Roberta Murphy, Johnny Martell, Ashley Bynum-Murphy. So that it was a really, a really special team to work with, you know, a team who, you know, everyone, everyone was really quite new to the field, but everyone was incredibly caring, incredibly compassionate, a lot of thought going into what we were all doing and how we were supporting people. A lot of excellent support from Tim Reed, who was our psychotherapy supervisor. So, I mean, I, I supported a small number of participants in that trial because, well, because there was a core team and I was there as a sort of backup additional support and I had to uh, clear it with some days off from my day job. So, so I had to kind of, um, I couldn't do as much as I wanted but you know following people through that trial following the the supervision the psychotherapy supervision process it was like a regular pilgrimage from brighton to to london on a monthly basis to really go into quite a bit of depth and talk about you know the whole process of psychedelic therapy and and what was happening and how it was for the team and and how it was for the participants you know it was such an education such a different way of such a different way of thinking about depression you know this condition that that i'd been working with in a whenever i say traditionally i think it sometimes sounds like you know yeah traditional psychiatry in a traditional traditionally psychiatric way so it was a real yeah real you know learning experience and really well supported team that must have been just a brilliant and the results are, are excellent yeah that trial it's it's interesting with that that trial because i think the results were were excellent the you know, I know they had the sort of primary outcome score, which was the quids, which was the, one of the only measures, as far as I recall, that that didn't separate statistically from the escitalopram. So I should say that it was a it was a comparison trial. Actually, wasn't originally it was originally designed to be more of an imaging trial, 
but there was this sort of uh, this outcome outcome measure of of depression of course and so yeah they were comparing it with escitalopram and escitalopram is a is a good antidepressant you know it's it's an antidepressant that that a lot of psychiatrists or some of the research was suggesting is one of the more effective one of the better tolerated one of the you know more effective antidepressants and so to demonstrate that psilocybin you know two doses of psilocybin with the therapy and that's the important part as well you know that 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 was as effective as a leading SSRI antidepressant i think you know that's a really that's a really important step and then there were a lot of secondary outcome measures that also showed you know that that there was a statistically significant separation and some benefit of course you know the out, the primary outcome measure has to be focused on but i think it was a really really important result i mean we could argue graham about clinical trials those randomized control trials being a bit too restrictive in having the primary outcome measure because clearly they did as you say they did separate psilocybin did show show benefits in the secondary outcome measures quality of life and kind of really important indicators yeah absolutely and i think there was also you know some differences in how well the treatments were tolerated as well you know we there's a lot of talk at the moment around the the challenges with ssris you know the side effects which are you know which are challenging and and coming off ssris can be challenging for some people as well and really sort of complicated but yeah i think it was it was a really important trial and it's really all, really important as well that that escitalopram showed you know such good results too because you know the the contemporary narrative is that antidepressants don't work and you know there's a maybe it is a big, much bigger discussion than we have time for but you know there is evidence to show that they that they do work but they don't work for everybody and maybe they're overprescribed for a lot of people and maybe i mean i could i might go off on a tangent now but maybe there is a lot that we as a society can learn about the medicalization of human emotion and and different ways of managing that but you know people who had the escitalopram in the trial they didn't necessarily have psychedelic therapy because that in itself would have been less possible because there wasn't a psychedelic experience to work with, but there was still care, you know, and support. And, you know, I think that's often perhaps that's underplayed in, in traditional psychiatry and tradi- traditional health services that actually it's the, the care can make a huge difference in the treatments we give as well. I would say absolutely. And we need more funding, don't we? So experts like yourself have got more time for you know therapies and talking and listening to people i get yeah time time is uh it was it's uh i think yeah when you think about the i mean gps do an incredible incredible job under really challenging circumstances and in the time that they have available you know it's absolutely remarkable i take my hats off to gp colleagues because you know they have to achieve so much in such a limited amount of time and and in mental health services we we have more time. Sometimes, you know, maybe other specialties think we sit around drinking tea, just chatting all day, but which isn't the case, I will say. It's, uh, you're lucky if you get a cup of tea. But, you know, we, we have more time to talk. But even still, you know, there's a, there's a structural pressure. There's a need to, to do a lot with increasingly little. And, you know, it's some of that which I think causes so much of the challenge in mental health services and in health services in general. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that really has to change. So that kind of brings me on to bringing 
psychedelic assisted therapy into the NHS. And people like yourself will be at the forefront of delivering that when it, you know, becomes available. And clearly we badly need this. As you say, not everyone will respond to the same medication and not everyone will respond to psychedelic assisted therapy who, you know, qualifies. But we badly need alternative approaches. And yes, how do you see that working within the sort of NHS structure? Yeah, that is a really huge question and one that I am glad you asked because it's something, you know, we've already started to think about. We've Yeah, a colleague of mine in IPT, which is the Institute for Psychedelic Therapy, and she was one of the co-authors on the paper that we submitted for the Frontiers in Psychiatry Journal a year or two ago now. For the listeners, Graham, we'll put all this in the show notes. So people can access them and the, the original paper. Yes, which I looked at today. It's great. It's really interesting. Absolutely. And that, that paper was about the readiness of psychiatrists to implement psychedelic therapy, which is kind of very much focusing on the opinion of psychiatrists in the in Sussex Partnership NHS Trust. That's where the people were, were surveyed. So Catherine Forster and I are already just starting to, we're just having conversations about it. And it's a huge question. I mean, I think ultimately, I mean, what led me down, partly what led me down this path towards psychedelic assisted therapy was, apart from my longstanding interest, you know, I started reading in my first year of university about psychedelics and psychoanalysis, you know, and, you know, so from the very beginning of my interest, there was this kind of literature that was kind of suggesting that these drugs, which have been vilified for years, may actually help you know, some people and, you know, may actually help with, with therapy, with, you know, with some insight, with something to, you know, reflect on with a different perspective, you know, that there might, may be some benefit. And so, so that curiosity led me in 2017 after a Royal College of Psychiatrists conference to start to get involved in this area. So it was actually the philosophy special interest group of the Royal College that put on a conference in October 17. Uh, well, that's interesting for the psychiatrists listening, because you're all members of the Royal College, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there was a, this, this conference that really went into, I'm aware I'm going around your question, but there's a conference that was, that was really about, it was about the, the sort of ethics of psychedelic research. And, but a lot of people, you know, were, who were kind of in the field, certainly people from Imperial and Johns Hopkins were there talking about their research. And it was, and then there were some more historical talks and sort of uh, and other academic talks and talks around ethics. It was just a fascinating conference and it really triggered my interest and was a, a way of me making contact with the Imperial College team, really kind of spurred my interest. So my interest, my curiosity around it has always just, it's been this question, can it work? Does it work? You know, is is it something that works or could work well enough to be scalable, to, you know, to actually be implementable in the NHS? I mean, I'm a, a huge advocate for for the NHS, for people being able to have access to healthcare, you know, free, paid for by taxes, you know, and that's something I really believe in is the accessibility. But there's still that question and the question still exists you know is this going to be a treatment that is sufficiently effective that's safe enough that is scalable and so i think you know that's really why i'm doing this 
you know, that's really why I'm involved. I, I certainly want to see it for myself. I have a lot of hope, of course. Otherwise, again, I probably wouldn't be in this position and having left a job that I loved. Yes, that was a big move to leave the NHS psychiatry. Brave move. Yeah. But a great move. Yeah, one that definitely a move that I haven't really regretted. I think it's been, you know, the right move in lots of ways. But yeah, you know, it's definitely not one that I was rushing to make before the opportunity came up, having worked in Silodep to Escitalopram trial, you know, the, when the opportunity to work in this trial came up. So I think, you know, my, part of my role is to is to to have a bit of equipoise, to have a bit of balance. You know, I think I'll say this, that the last thing, the mental health population, people with mental health challenges, the last thing they need is another treatment that doesn't work. You know, and so I think we really, really have to to look at this. And the best lens we have at the moment seems to be the randomized controlled trial for all its, uh, like you mentioned, the sort of the challenges of that and the challenges of incorporating psychedelic therapy or any psychotherapy into into a randomized controlled trial it is the best lens we have. And so, yeah, and I think this was actually something that was borne out in the surveys and the focus groups and the, the paper that we wrote and i have to give you know the credit to lisa page and ahmad raymond habib syed and catherine forcer for that paper really I, I contributed a little with some oversight and guidance but you know they put in all the legwork and it was sponsored by sussex partnership nhs trust i'll have to you know i think it's important to say that but you know one of the things they found was that perhaps more so than the us this paper showed that psychiatrists in the UK, psychiatrists that were surveyed in the, in the Sussex Partnership Trust were very interested and actually quite open to consider the possibility of this new way of working, this new treatment approach, the possibilities that, that come with it. But certainly there was a need for more training, more sort of understanding around it. There was also uncertainty, you know, and I think quite rightly, people need to see the evidence. So that's something. Hello everyone, it's me, Dr. Hannah Thurger. Apologies for interrupting the show, I promise I won't keep you too long. I wanted to remind you that drug science does not and will never take paid sponsorships or paid ads on the Drug Science Podcast. So don't worry, I'm not going to try and sell you anything. We feel that sponsorships would affect our ability to be impartial and corrupt our evidence-based mission. With that said, we're only able to continue making the show with your community donations. Community donors support our research into the harms of various drugs and discover how they might be used to help heal humankind. We're currently on tour up and down the country at various UK universities to help spread the word about some of our latest developments in drug science. By donating to drug science, you'll be able to attend all of our events completely free and we would love to meet you in person. Additionally, we're going to hold community exclusive events in 2023, including a Q&A podcast recording with Dave Nutt, Joe Neal and myself. So if you'd like to come on the show and ask us one of your burning questions, sign up now to become a member and we will let you know when that's happening. Finally, our most generous community donors will be invited to our prestigious end of year event at the House of Lords in Westminster. Right. Now back to the show. Graham, do you see it? We probably should come into the, the curriculum from medical schools and then into training, you know, arranged by organisations such as the Royal College. 
Well, I think so. Absolutely. I mean, I think at the very least, I mean, I remember doing a lot of training around journal clubs, critical appraisal of, of scientific research, medical, you know, clinical trials and all of this stuff. And it can be a very dry subject in medical training. You know, a lot of people for all, you know, evidence-based medicine is one of the cornerstones of what we do, but still reading papers and really kind of reading them deeply to kind of understand what's going on is a, is a challenging thing. And it's not for everyone, even in medical training. So I remember getting quite into that. And I think, you know, there's so much to discuss around, around psychedelic assisted therapy. There's so much to know and to learn for everybody in the field. And through this clinical trial process, I think it really should be introduced into into the training because I think it's also a, you know super interesting to be able to follow this kind of process as it's happening. There are a lot of clinical trials happening at the moment, aren't there? Absolutely, yeah, for a whole range of indications. And I mean, you know, psychedelic assisted therapy is you know is potentially pan-diagnostic in lots of ways you know there's a lot has been said about the fact that well there's been criticism of you know well it's been tried for all these different conditions but you know it's been tried because there is a thought that there are similarities in you know between different conditions and perhaps to some degree and you know it's not just psychedelic academics or clinical trialists are saying this but i know in america i think it's the national institute for mental health I think I believe has also said a similar thing that you know we we could benefit from different ways of looking at the way we categorize you know mental health mental illness and so there's a whole range of indications a whole range of different therapeutic approaches and different drugs medicines that are being tested it's an explosion really it's hard to keep up with it is it is there are more clinical trials every time i look it is hard to keep up and different absolutely you know, different psychedelics. And so that sort of brings me on to the, your work now with small pharma. So, you know, having worked with psilocybin, now working on DMT, which is similar mechanism of action, but quite different. It is quite different. Yeah, there's, there are similarities and there are differences. So, I mean, DMT just say a few basics, really. I suppose it's one of the active ingredients of ayahuasca from um, South America. In ayahuasca, there's the the monoamine oxidase inhibitor in the, the vine, and that allows it to be an orally active decoction liquid. And that that leads to a psychedelic experience that's, that's longer than if you were to take DMT by another route, a sort of non-oral route, whether that's inhaling the vapor or as Rick Strassman did in the in the 1990s, an intravenous injection. And the duration, I understand it to be a little bit more like psilocybin, the actual duration of the experience. And I think structurally, DMT and psilocybin are incredibly similar as well. And some people have said that if you, if you had a sufficiently high enough dose of psilocybin, more than most people dare to take, then the experience might be a little bit more like a DMT experience. But much longer. Oh, that's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And you mentioned about DMT or a school of thought that DMT is a neurotransmitter. Yeah, there has been some research. I mean, I think the research is, like all scientific research, needs to be kind of further explored. And I think, you know, some of it might be an indirect, indirect evidence from the presence of a couple of two enzymes in the brain 
in a particular place more than being able to measure the concentration of DMT in certain areas. That's my understanding. But the people have raised the possibility that DMT could be a neurotransmitter in similar concentrations to serotonin or to dopamine. But again, I think that needs a lot more a lot more evidence. I mean, there is a question that because DMT exists in the body, it's thought to exist in our bodies, even potentially in our lungs and our sort of peripheral tissues, and it exists across the animal and plant kingdom in you know, very sort of naturally, what might it be there for? Is it is it simply a metabolic byproduct or does is there a purpose to it? And those are big questions that I think we have to think about and explore and have some skepticism around, certainly in the, you know, the enthusiastic psychedelic space. But yeah, I often think of DMT as a little bit like a psilocybin experience. But if you were to take the full psilocybin experience and squeeze it into an eighth of the duration whilst retaining you know the intensity of the experience or you know it's a it's often a depending on dosage it's often a more immersive and you know sometimes can be described as a you know much more intense experience than psilocybin but you know what we think is what we hope is that there some of the benefit that's been seen in depression you know with psilocybin is is maintained or is is kind of preserved in the in these DMT DMT experiences when supported in a safe setting with with psychotherapy and I think that's the really important thing to emphasize. So do you have a sense that different psychedelics will work for certain patient groups? You know DMT might work for certain people with severe depression, certain types of people, and psilocybin might work for other types of people with severe depression, depending on where the depressions come from. I know you've done some work on inflammation and depression, and that, of course, is a very hot topic. Lots of work going on at that, you know, the relationship between brain inflammation, depression, and schizophrenia. Well, I I guess I wonder about that, different patient groups. Yeah, it might be still too early to really say. I'm a huge believer in, I mean, let's imagine that all the clinical trials uh, show positive enough results to take it through to being an approved treatment. You know, and if we had the option of DMT-assisted psychotherapy versus psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, then you know, my hope is that there could be a degree of choice. You know, there could be. I mean, we there's still exploration around mode of administration. So whether it's it's something that can be given, you know. Well, it's a possibility, you know, potentially of, of an oral administration at some stage, possibly, but whether it can be given intramuscularly or intravenously, those things can need to still be explored. But as for the experience itself, you know, there may be some people who would prefer a shorter experience, you know, something that is that is quicker. And if you think about the, you know, the services that need to provide this support, you know, there is a benefit in potentially from a service perspective in having a shorter acting psychedelic because you know there's less time needed less human resource needed to support somebody through the actual dosing phase so that that is an argument that's that's kind of being made in favor of of short acting psychedelics but that's a little bit more from like a service perspective and so much of it still needs to be explored you know the the therapy component still needs to be explored and we need to look into that to to ensure that we have the the safest and the most effective psychotherapy 
for these treatments as well. And maybe tailored towards the particular person. Maybe the therapy might be slightly different. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think and, and a big part of the, the psychotherapy model that we use, which was developed at Imperial by Rosalind Watts, you know, the, the ACE model, which is all about acceptance and connection and embodiment, it's very much a patient-led or patient-directed, patient-centered therapy process. So instead of it being something that's uh, systematized or, you know, very structured that we apply to people, it's very much about working in a very collaborative way, you know, around that person's experience and around their needs, you know, in a, in a flexible sort of, yeah, co-created way. So I think it it is likely too early to be able to make some of those distinctions. And I think that's one of that. It, it, we, we are still early in, in the research, despite it feeling like it's been around for years now. So. Yeah, for us, because <laughs> we've been, well, you're working in it and I've been following it. So let's talk about music, Graham, for a couple of minutes. I know you make your own music, so I'm going to plug your music here. So you work as Joseph Hecht. Is that right? Work might be too strong a word. <laughs> play, certainly play as Joseph Hecht. So yeah, yeah, I try. I mean, I've, it's a funny one to talk about my music because mostly it's, it's something I, it's something I've always wanted to do, to be honest. I got into electronic music in my late teens. It was an eye opener for me. And, and for about, well, for over 20 years, I've on and off tried to, to produce some, to, to try and make it. I've always had that, that passion. And maybe about four or five years ago, I kind of came to this realization that it was, yeah, I mean, there's so many things that get in the way of creative pursuits, you know, with work and family get in the way, but, you know, make it hard to kind of have the time to really, to really immerse yourself in it. And about five years ago, I just thought, you know, I've, what do I really want to do with my life as well as all that I am doing? And yeah, getting into electronic music and making it was the thing. So I, I invested in some decent gear. I try and make music with machines and less with computers we all spend so much time looking at screens that i didn't want to have a hobby that just was sat in front of a laptop so i use samplers drum machines synthesizers to all kind of connected through midi to try and produce music as much as i can in that way and it's just i'm still in a in a process of learning gradually making stuff that sounds a bit better to me <laughs> not to say that it sounds better to everyone else but things are sort of stuck up together. So I, I highly recommend our listeners to have a listen to some of Graham's music. And I know you were influenced by Boards of Canada, Alteca, and you've also talked about Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, listening to that as a child, I think. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that probably gave me bad dreams as a kid, and that's probably when it's, it's all linked together. But, yeah, Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, I mean, we used have that played to us in the car on family holidays from I must have been really young and it's it's a really spooky I don't know if you've heard it oh I do yes my husband's very into music we've hundreds of albums in the house thousands and we were listening to that the other day funny enough oh amazing yeah it's I mean if if people haven't heard it I mean it's a, it's well worth listening to it's like uh it's a rock opera would you say Is it yeah like a, yeah yeah, like a like a rock opera, loads of synths in there, lots of sound design. It's based around H.G. Wells's book, War of the Worlds. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, it's musically incredible. And I think there's some sound design in that 
that I hear occasionally in the music I've listened to, which is primarily, well, yeah, I was hugely inspired by Warp Records music in the late 90s, early 2000s. Warp Records artists like Orteca, Aphex Twin, Boards of Canada. And I think, you know, they have the same kind of, often the same kind of eerie spookiness to their music and the sound design is incredible. But yeah, there's definitely, I'm sure there's a link between War of the Worlds being semi-traumatized as a child listening to that in the car (laughs) on a dark, in a road trip. Yeah, really, really inspired me. So it's kind of led me towards this kind of slightly more, slightly darker music. Yeah, which resonates. Yeah, it's really, it's great stuff. But music within the psychedelic experience. So I have heard people say how how critical that aspect of the whole experience is. Yeah, absolutely. So as uh, Mendel Kalen and Bruno Giribaldi, I think, wrote a paper, must have been, well, I'm thinking maybe 2017, 18, maybe about the importance of music on a psychedelic journey. And I think it, you know, that's where I think it probably does need to be tailored to the type of experience that people are having. It needs to be thought about incredibly carefully. It has the power to to evoke strong emotion and to be, you know, it is it is guided in, in that way that it can really evoke a strong emotion, but also, you know, it's so different for different people. Obviously, the the subjectivity in listening to music is so important. But within a psychedelic playlist, you tend to have a range of non-verbal, sort of non-lyrical music that that yeah can be profoundly moving within that sort of heightened altered state experience. And so there are some advocates of of no music, of, of silence or of of more natural sounds as well. But you know, I think a lot of thought has to go into it. And with with Small Farmer, with our trials, with DMT, we worked with Max Cooper, who is a well-known electronic music artist, to uh, for for him to sort of help us by mixing a a playlist that we that we could use, you know, for the DMT experience. And yeah, that was so helpful and took a lot of work to kind of think about, you know to refine it as well, even after we'd started to really think about, you know, what it was actually doing for people, how how supportive it was, how helpful it was, you know, getting feedback from people. So yeah, huge thing to to think about. So the the playlist is kind of set. Same for everybody, is it? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, when in the Silodep 2 trial at Imperial, that was the same as well, that there was a set playlist. I know there was at near the end of the playlist, there was a little more flexibility. Sometimes people could choose a particular track, but I think also, you know, for for clinical trials, you have to have a degree of consistency in the the setting and the, as many of the other factors around as you can. And so, so that being a, a really important factor, we needed to have a degree of consistency. And DMT being an experience that in our trials lasts between twenty five and thirty minutes, there's l- less room for for bringing in and changing, bringing in other other music. So yeah, it became became like that really. It mostly it's acceptable for people, or they like it. Yeah, I think again, everybody has their own response to it. I think in general, it's been a, a positive addition. You know, it's something that's that supported the experience. Sometimes people actually have said that you know they're not so aware of the music, and then you know you have to ask the question. Is it something that's working on a more unconscious level or is it something that 
you know, that's supporting in that in that way as part of the environment for the psychedelic experience. But generally, it's been really well tolerated. I mean, in, like in the phase one trial, like the DMT experience itself, you know, we've found nobody in the trial who who regretted having that experience, you know, in, in the supported way that we did it at uh, Hammersmith Medicines Research. So, yeah, it's been a huge part of what we do is thinking really carefully about music. And if you think about how indigenous people who, of course, have used psychedelic for thousands of years, I guess the shaman does chanting and singing. Absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, I'm trying to think of the uh, author. There's there's Anthony Storr is a quite well-known psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, and he wrote a book about music, music and the mind. And I think one of the the aspects of the, in that book was just i mean there's there's been a theory and i don't know how well tested it was but it was suggested that you know as, as human beings that we actually learn to sing before we could actually talk or even dance before we could actually walk and you know whether that's played out whether that's sort of tested theory i don't know but it's an interesting one and i think really goes to the the heart of how important music has been for communities and for our societies and you know maybe around healing but also around you know communing and and group cohesion and you know and just the need for it that we have you know it's i think sometimes it's one of those basic needs that so many people have that's so obvious that we lose sight of how important it is that's my take yeah, I'm actually surrounded by music because of husband and all the music, and, and he's in a band and, like you, you know, makes music. But, yeah, I just cannot imagine it not being, there not being a lot of music around. It's so important. It's so important. And people people use music like medicine. You know, I've heard it. And for me, it's a little bit like that. I I don't go many days without listening to some music if any, oh, well, I, there must be some, but on those days, either I realize I need to, or maybe, maybe I'm a bit depressed. Maybe I'm a bit down. Maybe it's, you know, it's a reflection of that, but actually, you know, I think it's, yeah, again, it's just, it's like being the wood for the trees or the water to a fish, you know, it's just it's yeah. something that we often need really profoundly. I think so. And, you know, the mind is just too busy sometimes and it just kind of calms it down and calms that down, those sort of the multitude of thoughts and takes you out of that in a really good way. Absolutely. That's great. So, Graham, we've really, we've covered a lot of ground and time has just rushed by. So just in the last few minutes or so, I just want to ask you about the other work you're doing for psychedelic medicine. So the harm reduction, the integration work, your work with mind. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I'll just, I'll probably, I'll just say also that my work is changing a little bit as well. So I'm going to be continuing with the DMT trials. So we're coming to the end of the the phase 2A trial. So it's something I, I think we talked about before. It's something I can't really talk about, but until the results are released officially. But And then we're moving on to phase 1 trial, and then there'll be a, another phase 2, phase 2B trial sort of on the horizon as well, if all is going well. But yeah, I thought it'd be good to mention because... So my, my official title has been the Director of Clinical Psychiatry with Small Pharma. But I think, you know, for the purposes of transparency, it's really important to mention that on my first day 
in October 2020, we all realized that I couldn't have that joint role. So I couldn't be a director in a sponsor company for a clinical trial. And so because that would be introducing bias, and then of course, I couldn't be doing the outcome measures for the trial. And so we did a lot to kind of really think about that. So for the whole time I've been working with Small Pharma, I've been behind what we call an ethical wall, which has meant that, that you know, we've occasionally had contact with the research team in matters around the trial, but I've not had any kind of contact with the commercial side of the business, I think. And because of that also, that's meant that we've agreed for me to actually step outside of the company and become an independent contracted doctor, which is as far away from working for an organization than I've ever been, having been in in the NHS and grown up in the NHS for such a long time as well. So that means I'm, I'm kind of in title and officially even more sort of independent from the from the trials as well that does give me a little bit of extra time which i hope to make as much music as i can and you know spend more time with my family but yeah also in that time you know i think working with mind foundation in berlin so to be distinguished from the mind charity in the they're an organization that are involved in psychedelic research in berlin they're very much a sort of an organization that's wanting to sort of train therapists in augmented psychotherapy. So essentially looking at psychedelics and uh, ketamine treatments, but training up therapists for work in clinical trials and, and for work, you know, above ground where, where these medicines are able to be used in a, in an official way and when that happens. So, so that's in a, that's in a mentoring capacity which I'm, I've already started and is a, is a really interesting process. I work with the Institute for Psychedelic Therapy, which is the organization that was created really by Tim Reed, who was our psychotherapy supervisor, and Maria Papaspiru, who I know from Brighton, who, and we work together in Brighton integration circles, the psychedelic integration groups from 2019. So that's an organization which I'm an advisor for and I kind of also do the academic circle, which is essentially like a journal club, critical appraisal, discussion around research as well. But what, what they've put together is a, is a community, a real community of, of like-minded therapists and other affiliated healthcare practitioners who are interested in learning more about psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy it's very much, you know, for CPD, but they've also started a training program now as well, which is, it's kind of called depth relational process. And so it's very much a sort of, yeah, a very sort of uh, deep training program to help people really understand, you know, psychedelic therapy in a very deep way. Obviously, that doesn't, that doesn't involve anything underground, you know, it probably doesn't even need saying it's kind of very much about kind of yeah, helping people. I mean, holotropic breath work is a part of that as well, which is a very, very uh, legal way of having psychedelic-like experiences in a very supported way. So yeah, I mean, I think, you know, working with Tim and Maria and Justine and Liz at the Institute of Psychedelic Therapy is, uh, has been a real joy for the past couple of years. And providing much-needed training and education. Absolutely, Yeah. I mean, we started with talking about training for psychiatrists as well. And so that is for psychiatrists to, yeah, to, to sort of be a part of that and to learn as we all learn, you know, through this, through this process. So 
psychiatrists can be affiliate members and psychotherapists with a private practice can be full members. But yeah, it's a great, a great learning space. And Graham, I just have one final question. Did you have a good mentor at any point in your career? That is a great question. I've had loads of great mentors. I have to say, you know, most of my academic training, I suppose, during my psychiatry training happened in either at St. George's or, or South London and Maudsley Trust. So all that was based in London. But the psychiatrists I work with in Sussex Partnership NHS Trust have been, yeah, have really helped shape the psychiatrist I am, I would say. And I think of a number of people, like, it's probably difficult to list them all, but you know, there's psychiatrists who have taught me about the importance of the patient's story, the patient's life story, people's life story and experiences. There's another psychiatrist who comes to my mind who was very, very much about psychopathology, psycho- no, no, phenomenology, sorry. So thinking very much instead of just symptoms, you know, thinking about the person's direct experience of conditions like psychosis and schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Such a caring psychiatrist, somebody who, you know, had to work in the way psychiatrists have to work in modern mental health services, you know, and using the Mental Health Act and and all of that when really necessary, but cared so much about the patient journey and cared so much about his patients. So those are, yeah, two people that came to mind. And even the first person I worked with as well was, you know, I remember so many of the things that he taught me when I, in 2006, when I, when I started in psychiatry, all idealistic and uh, enthusiastic. There's so much wisdom in the psychiatrists I've worked with. So yeah, it's difficult to single out one person, but they're a, a great bunch. It is so wonderful to have a great mentor or, you know, a group of people that you can think of that have really helped you in the course of your career. You know, I think it can't be underestimated. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think I think I will say that, you know, I think Tim Reed fulfills some of that role as well. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll he'll hate saying this, but you know, I think you know, for thinking in a different way, and you know, and bringing to he, you know, he certainly worked at the sharp end of modern psychiatric acute ment, you know, mental health care, whilst holding that awareness of of psychotherapy, of psychodynamics, of all the the other processes, the psychosocial processes that go on in all of us. So yeah, there's been a lot of people I've worked with who have yeah been invaluable teachers. I think that's a brilliant place to stop, Graham. Sadly, we have run out of time. This has been a great privilege for me talking to you, Graham. It's just been fantastic. Oh, I think the listeners, you know, we've all learned a great deal. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. And just for me to say thank you so much for joining us, Graham. It's been brilliant. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's, I can't believe the time has gone. Where did what happened there? I know. How did that happen? <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. <laughs>